Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The whole business of writing about a living person is a fraught compromise. I mean, on the one hand, it's it offers many possibilities because you, that living person can guide you in all sorts of ways and you can ask them what they did and what they didn't do. It's completely different from writing about someone who is dead and, and who can't interfere. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, Isaac Butler. And I'm your other host, June Thomas. June, who do we have on this week's episode? Well, the lovely voice we heard at the top of the show belongs to Adam Sisman, an eminent biographer, most recently of spy novelist John le Carré, about whom he has published two biographies. Not one, but two. Mm-hmm. Amazing. You know, I feel like it's been quite a long time since we've had a biographer on, uh, so I'm excited to have one on again. What drew you to Adam specifically? Yep, that's right. Back in 2021, Roman had a fantastic conversation with Heather Clark, author mm. of Red Comet, that fantastic biography of Sylvia Plath. But yes, it's been a while. So I've been reading a bunch of biographies of late, and I found Adam's most recent book, The Secret Life of John Le Carré, so fascinating that I basically started rereading it the minute I had finished it. That is very high praise because you yeah. are a busy, busy woman. And so, well, you know, you've got one wild and precious life. If you're <laughs> going to spend it reading a book a second time immediately, exactly. that's incredible. It's a really fascinating book. And it contains a sort of meta narrative about the challenges he faced writing about Le Carre's life. And I just wanted to ask him more about those travails. Am I saying that working gave me an excuse to do that? I'm not saying it didn't. I mean, that's part of why we do this job is Mm -hmm. to talk to people who we think are interesting. You know, it's not just for the gigantic paychecks. Uh, (laughs) And I'm guessing, you know, it doesn't take a decade of archival research and extensive interviews to deduce that you probably have a bonus segment for our Slate Plus listeners. Oh, man, do I. So one of the reasons that I love reading books about the writing process, and there are some really great ones by biographers, is, well, they take you behind the curtain. But sometimes you still want to know more. And this was the case when Adam talked about taking international trips to do interviews when he was in research mode for his Le Carre books. And he mentioned having made four separate trips to Germany in the course of one month. And I just wanted to know why those trips were necessary. What was he doing? Who was he talking to? Like, what was the purpose? So I asked him about that. I also asked him, if he could have achieved the same benefits from a Zoom call, since now Mm. that is 
much more widely available. Mm, the could this meeting have been an email of uh, the nonfiction writers process? Exactly. That sounds great. I love that you're getting that into the nitty gritty. And if you are a Slate Plus subscriber, all of that will be waiting for you at the end of this week's episode. If you're not a Slate Plus subscriber, I'm just going to take a quick moment to pitch you on subscribing to Slate Plus, which I really think you should do. I subscribe, even though I'm an employee of uh, this podcast. You get bonus segments of shows like this one. You get bonus full episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Big Mood, Little Mood. You get full access behind the paywall of our mothership site at Slate.com. And you get to sleep a little bit easier at night knowing that you've done everything you can to support what we do right here on Working. You can go to Slate.com slash Working Plus today to sign up. All right, now let's listen in to June's conversation with Adam Sisman. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Adam Sisman, welcome to Working. I'm very excited to learn about your creative process. Well, I, I hope I can give you some interesting material. <laughs> Adam, I wanted to have you on the show because like many people, I love to read biographies and you have written some excellent ones. Among others, you've written about the historians A.J.P. Taylor and Hugh Trevor Roper, the OG biographer James Boswell, and most recently, the spy novelist John le Carré, Twice. Uh, we'll talk more about your Le Carre books in a bit. But first, I'd love to know what drew you to biography. Well, like a lot of things in my life anyway, and perhaps in everybody's life, it, it was rather by accident. I, um, I started my working career as a, a publisher. I'd always really wanted to be a writer of some kind. Um, that was what I dreamt about uh, even at school. But um, I didn't know what to write. And my attempts at writing fiction or poetry were dreary beyond belief. And uh, I knew I didn't really have it in me, I think, to write fiction. And then um, I found myself at a stage in my career, I'd been working as an editor for quite a long time, maybe 15 years, and seen how other people wrote. And suddenly I didn't have a job anymore. And I was casting around for things to do. And I thought, well, why don't I write a biography of A.J.P. Taylor, who had just died? Um, uh. In fact, it was quite a funny story, really, because I thought, well, how do you go about writing a biography? And I thought, well, I suppose you get in touch with uh, the estate. The, the, I mean, in, this, in his case, his widow, who I knew lived actually quite close to where I lived in North London. <laughs> and I thought, well, how do I contact her. And then I thought, well, I, I know someone who knew him, um, who used to go and visit him in a nursing home in his last few years, who was a, a military historian called M.R.D. Foote. And so I rang him up. And before I could say why I was ringing, he said, Adam, I can't talk now. This is how he talked. I'm just <laughs> off to meet H.A.P. Taylor's prospective biographer. 
And I said, but Michael, I want to write A.J.P. Taylor's biography. Can't talk now, bye! <laughs> so that was, a, that was my start. <laughs> and uh, it was a bit dispiriting. But um, in fact... <laughs> yes. Uh, in fact, I did subsequently get to meet Taylor's widow, who turned out to be a nice Hungarian lady called Ava. And um, she was willing, rather kindly, to allow me as a complete novice to, to write his biography, which I proceeded to do. And um, I was still doing other things. I mean, this wasn't my main mm. form of uh, subsistence. But it did get me established and um, it did make it much easier after that to um, write other books. Well, I have to say, one of the things that seems clear to me is that you, you, it may not seem that way to you, but that you seem to be very efficient. One of the things that clearly happens, especially with biographies, I think, is that people, some people get lost, even if they've written biographies before, some biographies, they, they get a little out of hand, but you've always been very efficient. Does it seem that way to you? Um, not at all, no. <laughs> I, I, I do think, though, that one advantage of having been an editor for so many years was a well there are several advantages one one was a sense of the market mm. and what people are interested in and what they're not interested in and another is a sort of desire to cut to the chase not to be led by your research which i think unfortunately an awful lot of uh, academic writers mm. are the more work they've had to do to find a piece of information that the more reluctant they are not to publish it. Um, right, exactly. I, I try, I mean, one of the things I try to do is to write serious books which are, you know, as good as those written by academics, but to write them in a way that will appeal to as wide a possible audience. And mm -hmm. I'm in a way more happy when, uh, let's say, a, a normal person enjoys one of my books or just as happy as when a, a learned professor I am now a learned professor myself. I say, I say that with a bit tongue-in-cheek. But I mean, for example, <laughs> I remember when I wrote my Hugh Trevor Roper book, being enormously flattered to get a message from uh, a New York uh, yellow cab driver who wrote to me saying, I'd never heard of this guy. Um, I've never read about a British historian before, but I read your book and really enjoyed it. And I thought that was marvellous. <laughs> I was so pleased. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and that's the sort of thing that I you know, I aspire to and maybe don't always achieve. But, you know, I'm, I'm very pleased if that happens. That's wonderful. All right, let's get to Le Carre. I was going to beat around the bush a bit more, but I, I, ca I can't do it. Um, <laughs> as I said earlier, you, you ended up writing two biographies of John Le Carre. And, and just to get it out of the way, his real name was David Cornwell. But just to avoid confusion, I'm going to stick with the pen name and we'll just take it as read that we know there's another name. Um I've heard you say in interviews that initially you wrote to him to say you were interested in his being the subject of your next book. And I'm kind of curious how you sold yourself to him. And did it feel to you that that was what you were doing? It's interesting to hear that this, it's kind of always been a little bit like that, even, you know, with AJP Taylor's widow. So what are you trying to achieve when you make that first contact? Well, um, it's funny you say it's always been like that. I mean, I... Um I'm just backtracking for a moment. I mean, when I wrote my biography of Hugh Trevor Roper, that was the first time I'd written about somebody who I, I'd known. And I, 
I, when I came to write it after his death, I had by that time convinced myself that um, he had suggested the idea to me. And it was only when I was working in his archive that I found a letter from myself suggesting it to him. Um, so it just wow. shows how you can't rely even on, well, how unreliable memory is. Um, mm. As far as Le Carre, and I'm afraid I'm going to use both names because I, <laughs> I knew him as David. I mean, he was David mm. to me. David Cornwall. Um, but I didn't at that stage, of course. As far as Le Carre was concerned, I, um, there is a backstory, which is that many people had tried to write his biography in the past, and there was an extant contract for a biography by the, the well-known thriller writer, uh, Robert Harris. And I knew Robert pretty well, in fact. I mean, very well. And, and at the editor who had commissioned this book was my late wife, um, Robin. Um, oh, my goodness. Wow. <laughs> and many years before. In fact, I complained to Robin. I said to her, I want to write that book. And she said, <laughs> well, well, I've commissioned Robert to do it. So um, uh, anyway, over the years, I've, I often said to Robert, are you going to write that biography? Because if you don't, I, I'd like to have a go myself. And, and he became more and more successful as a novelist himself. And and so it was less and less likely that he would do it. And eventually, over a pub lunch one day, he said, no, I'm not going to write it, so don't let me stand in your way. And it was then that I wrote to David. Um, didn't didn't Mr Harris also tell you that at some point, I think you say in, in the second biography, that he told you it would never happen in his lifetime or something? He yes, kind of warned you yes, off, didn't yes, he? Yes, he did, yes. And several other people did too. And And actually, oh. looking back on it... I think they were in many ways right in the sense I was only able to produce part of the truth. Um, but also, even to get there was an enormous struggle. Mm. And one reason why I wrote the second book, so sort of jumping forward, in, and I'm yeah. sure we'll go back, but is that yeah. the struggle, it seemed to me that the struggle itself, the relations, the very um, fraught relations at times between the biographer and the subject, was interesting in itself. It, there was a story mm. behind the story. Um, yes. I found that people were interested in, and I was certainly interested in myself, in retrospect. At the time, I was just keen to get the damn thing written. Um, right, but, right. Um, uh, and at times, near despair. I mean, it, it, it yeah. became very emotional for both of us, really. I mean, while I, we were friendly i won't say we were friends we were friendly we spent a lot of time together we you know we ate together drank together um went on long walks together etc nevertheless i mean there was a stage where i thought the whole project was going to collapse and for me that would have been a financial disaster yeah and he wrote me a letter at a kind of crisis point where he seemed to be indicating that he might um, do something dreadful. Maybe, you know, he, yeah. he, he referred to several, the fact that several of the uh, heroes of his books had killed themselves. So I, I felt completely out of my depth. I felt, you know, this is crazy. I'm writing a book about a man who I, who I admire, and it's killing him. <laughs> um, well... And and it was there was so much on the line for you and and yes clearly he he had not to make light of the sort of veiled threats or or maybe even subfusked threats but there was more on the line for you in a sense than for him his reputation obviously mattered to him but he had lots of money it was you know I, I don't know I feel like I'm being a little crass but no no you're absolutely right no no I mean the, the stakes were very high um, uh, I think there are different kinds of stakes for me. 
it was a, you know, it would have been a financial disaster if the book had fallen through because I'd spent several years working on it and, I, you know, would have no, nothing to show for that. For him, it would probably have been a relief in some ways, although damaging to his reputation. So he was more worried about publicity and I was more worried about publishing. Um, we were pulling in yeah. opposite directions, really. Yeah. We'll return with more of June's conversation with biographer Adam Sisman after this. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, listeners, Isaac Butler here. Uh, just a quick note to say thank you so much for listening. If you are enjoying this show and do not subscribe yet, hey, maybe you want to like click that subscribe button on your podcast app. And if you already subscribe and you're thinking, how can I help drive new listeners to Slate's incredible creative process oriented podcast working? Well, guess what? There's some things you can do. You can rate our show. You can review our show. If you're an Apple subscriber, you can give us five stars. If you're on uh, Overcast, my podcast app of choice, you can hit the little star button. There's lots of things that you can do to support us. If you're already doing those things, thank you so much. And uh, now let's get back to June's conversation with Adam Sisman. Let's just go back, as you suggested we might, Effectively, you were written to him in the first part because you wanted it to be an authorised biography. What does that mean and why is it important? Well, it's funny you say that because he always resisted the term authorised. I think he thought of authorised meaning in some way official. Mm. There is um, in Britain, I think perhaps not in, in the US, a sort of classification of official biography of, of members of the royal family or that sort of thing. Um, usually the kiss of death, in my opinion. um, An authorised biography generally means that you're writing it with the consent of the subject or the estate and that they give you the right to quote. That's the key thing. Copyright permission. Quote both published and unpublished material. And access. Access to archives, access to the individual themselves, to their families and to their friends 
former lovers, goodness knows who, you know. Um, yeah. I mean, David, very, I think, openly and generously um, gave me a list of people who he thought were important for me to see, including people he no longer spoke to, who he regarded as enemies. Really? It's funny, though, that he... You also mention in, in the second biography that people that you spoke with would often report back to him. Yes. What was going on with that? I mean, and I, it's funny because I've come across that in other books by biographers. Um, Deirdre Burr, when she was doing her biography of Samuel Beckett, it seemed like there was just a whole system of people trying to win favour with the subject by, you know, I, I talked to them, but, I, you know, I teacher, I didn't tell them too much. It seems like a very strange sometimes psychology well, very strange and yet not so strange. I mean, if we think of our own, everybody has a network of personal relations, people that we're close to, uh, we're fond of. And if we speak to a stranger about, you know, let's say a relative or a close friend um, or a colleague, we might be slightly anxious about what use that stranger will make of the material. And we might be anxious mm. about what the, the, the subject will think about that. So I think it's a perfectly mm. natural human thing. I mean, the whole business of writing about a living person is is a fraught compromise. I mean, on the one yeah. hand, it's, yeah. it offers many possibilities because you that living person can guide you in all sorts of ways and you can interview them and you can... Um, you can ask them what they they did and what they didn't do and why they did it and and so on. But there are all sorts of pitfalls too. Mm, so it's a, mm. it's completely different from writing about someone who is who is dead and and yes. who can't interfere. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, David resisted the idea that uh, this would be a, an authorized biography, but he he said the word we should use is definitive, <laughs> and I think that partly meant in order to discourage anyone else from doing it. Yeah, yeah, which must have felt good to you. I mean, you certainly don't want other people doing it at the same time. You no. can't control what will come after. We but, had a contract. Yes. We drew up a contract between us where he specifically undertook not to encourage anyone else um, mm. to write a biography or not to cooperate with them. Uh, no, that uh -huh. was a condition of, of the contract. Although he kind of, at some point, especially when things got a little dicey, he sort of indicated that, he, in fact, wasn't it on publication day in 2015 that that he was going to finally write the memoir that had not appeared for, you know, more than 70 years? Yes. Um, well, I don't know about more than, but, but for, which he'd been talking <laughs> yeah. about doing for a very long time. Yes. Yes. And... Um, my editor at the time quipped that uh, he's trying to take back control of the agenda, um, yes. which I thought was a nice way of putting it. Um, well, so he cooperated. And one of the things that that brought was, I think you've said about 60 hours of conversation with him. And you, you each saw the purpose of those interviews or conversations differently. What did he think it was for? And how did you see it? Well, I thought it was clear at the start what it was for, but he it became obvious to me that he seemed to be seeing it as more as a form of dictation and that, that I should be taking down what he said verbatim and then printing it in my book. Well, well that wasn't the way I saw it at all. I, I, I saw it as me simply gathering material, which I might or might not use for the book, and I certainly would use critically. I mean, mm -hmm. he complained to me at one point, um, why is it, he said, you seem to believe what everybody else tells you, and you don't believe what I say? And I said, well, David, um, how can I put this? Uh, it's because you have said on several occasions that you are a liar. 
<laughs> and he had the grace to smile, albeit ruefully, at that point. I mean, we did. It was a sort of strange business. The whole thing was very strange. I mean, in some ways, it was a very intimate relationship, um, although it wasn't really a friendship, as I say. And I had yeah. to pinch. Sometimes we had a lot of fun together and quite a lot of laughs. He said to me at another point. Um, I know it's supposed to be warts and all, but it seems to be all warts and no all. <laughs> I thought that was... Great quite, line. Yes, I thought it was very clever. <laughs> well, of course, he's very good at great lines. Right. I mean, yeah. everything I wrote about him in both books should be seen in the context of my thinking of him as a serious and important writer. Not, you mm-hmm. know, I think some books are better than others, and I think the more recent books are are not so good and in fact some of them very feeble but mm-hmm. I think you should always judge a writer by their best books and I think yes. his best books are very good indeed yeah so you would see him in London but he also had a sort of redoubt in Cornwall where he would go to write but he also I guess had his archive there what was the archive I mean what did it look like what was in it and how helpful was that so I met, uh, I was greeted by David's wife, Jane, who showed me to a garage in which there were masses of boxes and filing cabinets with stuff more or less arranged, some of it quite well arranged, but some of it less well arranged. And, you know, she just basically gave me the key and said, get on with it. <laughs> and in fact, I had to, it was quite a funny thing because it was, um, when I first went down there, it was a rather beautiful um, spring day in April, I think, uh, and there was sort of sun outside and the bird song and insects and that all that wonderful thing about early spring, mm-hmm. which is, I mean, such a relief. And 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 so I left mm-hmm. the door open and let nature come to me. And, and then I, at a certain point, I was aware of a shadow against the door, and I looked up to see David standing there. I hadn't seen him until this point, and he said. It's so strange to have you here, Adam, poking about inside my mind. Wow. Now I thought that was uh, quite an interesting image. Wow. So it was contracts and correspondence and manuscripts? I mean, just all kinds of stuff? Oh, yes, all kinds of wow. stuff. I mean, the, the, I mean, I found letters from women he'd had affairs with, which I don't think he knew were there, um, yeah. um, with, a, a, in fact, his son's au pair. Um, I found a very curious document he had written for a psychoanalyst in the 60s when his life was falling apart, rather, about his, uh, about his sex life, really, his sexuality, wow. which was curiously untruthful, I, I realised after reading it. I mean, um, I don't think he knew that that was there. I found, you know, there, were, there was a combination of all sorts of things, in, you know, from royalty statements to... You know, as I say, letters from fans, all sorts of things. And people he, I mean, he's from the generation that did write letters and didn't really like email. And of course, it's a big worry for biographers that in the future there won't be these archives of letters to draw upon. So at a certain point, as you alluded before, but at a certain point, you discovered things that David, John Le Carré, did not want you to put in the book. They were things about affairs, mostly. That's, it was his relations with women who weren't his wife, right? Yes, yes. So he didn't want that. And so what did he do? It, because this really could have destroyed the work that you'd done. So he just didn't want the book to come out if you were going to talk about those things? 
Well, it, it was curious. He didn't seem to have imagined that this could happen, though. I mean, I kept coming across evidence of affairs, and I still, I, even today, without trying. I mean, wow. I, I do say in the new book how, I mean, this happened largely by accident. I mean, uh, I remember late one night at a party here where I live in Bristol, meeting a, someone I'd never met before, and and we were we started talking about Proust, believe it or not. It was a... <laughs> We were both a bit drunk, and 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 um, <laughs> uh, he asked me about what I did, and I, you know, I mentioned that I'd written this biography of John Le Carre, and he said, "Oh, I know someone whose mother had an affair with John Le Carre," and and this kept on happening. I went out to lunch with some friends who lived near Bath, and there were some other guests there, and they say, "Oh, we know someone who had an affair with John Le Carre," and and so on and so, and it keeps on happening. I mean, it's happened. Three more women have come forward since this book went to press. Wow. And I, I think there'll be more. So the picture is of someone who had multiple affairs. I speculate it may have been 20 or 30 in the course of his second marriage, um, mm. which was, you know, sort of one every, almost one a year, um, and who was lying all the time and deceiving yeah. his, particularly his yeah. wife, but, but everyone. Mm-hmm. And so, and I thought that was interesting even just in terms of how he managed it but also in terms of what effect it had on him as a character lying about something yeah. very important to to the, those people closest to him i i say um, <laughs> in the new book the uh, the, the man downstairs appeared the same as ever, but the portrait in the attic became more and more hideous. <laughs> right, right, um, right. And I think that, that there is a corrosive effect of repeated lying over, on a, yeah. over a long well, period. You, one thing that surprised me, though, is that you said, um, this is a quote from The Secret Life of John Le Carré, I was not especially interested in David's private life per se, though I could scarcely ignore the fact that betrayal was a recurrent theme in his work. And I have to say, I'm surprised that you weren't interested in his private life. Why is your subject's private life less interesting to you than their public persona? Isn't the purpose of a biography to show all sides of the subject to readers? Well, that's a very good point. But I mean, well, why I was interested in Le Carre was not because he was a multiple adulterer, but because he wrote <laughs> he wrote some very good books, mm. um, some of which I've read again and again. I just recently reread uh, A Perfect Spy, and incidentally, rereading A Perfect Spy in the light of what I've learnt since um, mm. makes everything stand out much more clearly. Mm. Um, a Perfect Spy, for those who don't know, is his autobiographical novel. And it's a it's a masterpiece. I think it's a it's a, mm. a, a Philip Roth described it as the best English novel since the war. Wow! So uh, you know, what does it matter about a writer whether they sleep with one person or several dozen? In a sense, it doesn't matter at all. You know, do we care how many mistresses Baron had? Um, but partly because with Baron, it was all open. It was it's, it's yeah. the lying and the deceit as much as the as the um, adultery, that uh, infidelity that, that seems to me to be important and, and the betrayal of, of those close to him. And what that did to him inside, all the, and the because the, mm-hmm. the, the, um, I think he was tormented about it. I think he felt himself to be a very damaged person and he was full of self-loathing. Yeah. Well, so can you talk us how you effectively decided that there would be two biographies? 
Well, I suppose the simple answer, that's a long answer, not too long for this interview, and a short answer. The long answer is probably in the book, but the the short answer is that at a certain stage, he was finding the whole thing very difficult, and he suggested that his eldest son, Simon, talk to me on his behalf. And Simon came down to Bristol, to the house that I'm talking to you from now, um, and uh, sat in this very room, actually, and, and we talked all day, and... Simon said, why don't you keep a secret annex for future publication? And you can publish what you can publish now and publish the secret annex after David's death. And mm-hmm. that essentially is what I decided to do. I mean, it's, it's a bit more complicated than that, but, but that, is, uh, that was a compromise between my needs and his needs. I'm curious, again, to, to get into the sort of the, the specifics of how you did it. Were you reporting the secret annex while he was still alive, knowing that it would only be published after his death, or did you...? Well, I, 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 I tried not to hide anything from him, so that, for example, when I met a woman with whom he had an affair, I told him. But I didn't, you know, go out of my way to um, tell him everything I was thinking, I just thought I should be straightforward with him in a way that he wasn't always straightforward with me. But um, in fact, I, I, mean, I, I remember a conversation with the great Bob Gottlieb. I, um, this will, um, Bob Gottlieb, for those who don't know, um, has been described as the greatest editor of the second half of the 20th century. He was a chief editor at Knopf for many years, and he was David's editor for many years. And, and Bob, who alas died last year, said to me that when he met David, he realised... This guy, is, he said, is much smarter than me. And if I'm not very careful, he's going to run rings around me. So I'm, what I'm going to have to do is be entirely straight with him and hope that, you know, we can somehow work through it that way. And, that, and I tried to do the same, really. I tried to adopt Bob's recommendation. Mm-hmm. Adam Sisman, it has been so much fun and so fascinating to talk with you. Thank you for sharing some of your creative process with us. Well, I've enjoyed it very much. Thank you. When we return, June and I will talk about how to not let research ruin your life, the ethics of interviewing, and how you decide what to leave in and what to leave out when working on a big project. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and... What do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. June, I just wanted to say thank you for that fascinating and informative conversation. I've read a few Le Carre books, including A Perfect Spy, which I agree is kind of a work of deranged genius. Uh, I have not read either of Sisman's biographies, but I'm very excited to check them out now. I kind of wish I had had this episode to listen to when I wrote The Method because <laughs> uh, that book was conceived of as a biography of an idea. And so the wow. biographer's process was very interesting to me and, and still is. I loved this point that he made about avoiding getting trapped in the whirlpool of research. I'm sure this is true for you. It's true of me. Research is really fun. Yes. That detective 
part of it of digging in archives and interviewing people and finding something in one book that you suddenly realize connects to something Mm, small in another. Oh, it's so good. But research is not the story. The story is the story. And you can get Mm. so addicted to the hunt that you think of something that's hard to find as more worthy, even when it isn't necessarily. Mm. And that's particularly true. And I, I really appreciated this second point. If you know that the kind of work you're doing is for a general audience, right? He wants yeah. to do scholarly, lily, rigorous work, but uh, for a general audience. And, and just having that clarity of purpose, I thought, was really, really important. Absolutely. That's totally crucial, right? I mean, I'm not a tattoo-getting kind of person, but I want to get a Sharpie now and kind of write those words on my monitor bezel, the chin of my computer here. If you can keep the audience in mind and remember that mainstream audiences really do not want and certainly don't need to know what your subject had for dinner on, you know, Thursday, February 8th, 2024, I think you're less likely to get lost in the minutiae. Yeah, you know, I think that's really interesting because it's a particular challenge of the biographical field because we expect to a certain extent the first major biography of a subject or if you're saying this is a major biography of the subject it has to be a doorstop right but 20 30 years ago there were lots of great biographies that were 300 pages long yeah like I've read a bunch of biographies by Patricia Bosworth, who wrote a great one of uh, James Dean, a great one of Montgomery Clift, great one of uh, Marlon Brando, and she was part of the actor studio. I think the longest one of those is 350 pages long. You know, it wow, doesn't yes. always have to be like everything about the person's early childhood if their childhood is not actually important to their story. True. Yeah. Fully agree. I'm glad. More short (laughs) biographies. You know, few of us are in the situation where we're writing a book whose subject is routinely contacting us and telling us I might kill myself, right? That is not a thing that I think we've all gone through. But anyone who works with living subjects knows that those relationships can be really fraught. Maybe the most famous quote about this in maybe the most famous book about this comes from Janet Malcolm in The Journalist and the Murderer. It's it's clarion call of an opening line, which is every journalist who is not too stupid or too full of himself to notice what is going on knows that what he does is morally indefensible. And what she means there is that the psychodynamics of interviewing are so fraught, but the journalist has final control over the work that emerges from that interview, even though two people two people enter the interview, one yes. person emerges, right? Uh, right? And that's why it's indefensible. Look, I love that book. I've read it five times. I have taught it. Janet Malcolm is someone I idolize. Uh, she's one of my favorite writers. But having now conducted hundreds of interviews and written many, many pieces based on interviews, I have to say, I actually think she's completely full of shit. And that that <laughs> quote is mostly about her own feelings about being sued for libel while she was yeah. writing that book. You've done a lot of interviews. Your new book has a lot of interviews in it. Am I wrong? Is what I do totally indefensible? Oh, I'm not going to talk about you, Isaac, but I got to say, I am also a repeat consumer of that book. I love it, but I have to say, I think it depends. Or rather, the question of defensibility rests with the ethics of the interviewer. It's not intrinsic to the act of interviewing. I mean, without getting too deep into the weeds of the journalist and the murderer, I will note that the subject of the book, writer Joe McGuinness, really did mislead accused murderer Jeffrey MacDonald in order to gain access to MacDonald and his defense team so that he could write a book about them. And, you know, I get it that 
Janet Malcolm certainly didn't help her case by using some very ethically questionable techniques herself. But at base, an ethical journalist or writer will not mislead the person whose cooperation they want to get. They won't misrepresent what anyone says. They will stick to whatever agreements they made as to attribution, all of that. So it certainly doesn't have to be, right? Yeah, no, I I agree. I think that, I don't know, you do need to keep in mind that people are trusting you with their stories, right? Yes, absolutely. And and that may be that they're trusting you with their stories and ultimately you're going to say something that they don't like. That is okay. The ethics of, of it does not mean you have to only make them look good or whatever. It just means, you know, you have a duty to the truth and you have a duty not to misuse or mistreat people, at least to me. But, but let's talk a little bit more specifically as, as craftspeople of the interview, maybe, you know, how (laughs) should one approach the complex dynamics that emerge between interview subject and and interviewee? And I also want to say, there's lots of fields other than writing where you're interviewing people, right? Absolutely. I mean, interviewing is a part of research. I know artists in almost every field do interviews as part of their research, whether they're poets or painters or composers or anything. Interviews are vitally important. So it's not just about us. Yeah. And outside of the arts, a lot of people have to write reports for work. How do you write those reports you ask people or people do user interface you know design they talk to people who use their software you know so we're all talking to people um i won't deny that it's a slippery slope you know when you reach out to someone to ask for their cooperation with a biography for example that's a big ask and you've surely put in a bunch of work already whether that's research or time spent reading their work you're not gonna like steam in there with hey you're a mediocre writer and uh, you're totally overrated. And man, you've really treated some people badly. You, you know, give me access to your archives. I actually start say- every working interview that way. <laughs> I tell the person everything I dislike about their latest uh, work. Mm-hmm. And then I'll, mm-hmm. so that they know they have to defend their process in terms yeah. of uh, what went wrong. I mean, that's just damn good technique, you know. Yeah, right. So, nagging, nagging. Yeah, nagging, nagging. So you, you've got to say some nice things, which, you know, you should also mean, because if you really thought this person was unworthy of your time, you really shouldn't be undertaking a project of writing about them. So, you know, you'll probably flatter them a bit. Is light flattery deceptive? I don't think so. Absent any underlying pathologies, I think we all know when we're lying and you shouldn't lie. I do think, though, that when you're working with a living subject, there is an obligation to offer them a right of reply if other people from their life significantly contradict their version of events. Or, you know, if the research takes you down a path you didn't expect, you should kind of tell them what's going on. When you start a project, you don't know where it's going to lead. And I think you have to be clear about that with the subject. You know, you you don't ever promise anyone, well, at least if you're writing a serious book, you you can't say, I'm going to use a very unrealistic example. Don't worry, this is going to be a really positive picture. Because what if you find out that they're a mass murderer? You know, don't make promises you can't keep. And of course, when you're writing nonfiction, just to state the obvious, everything has to be true and unmanipulated, and that includes your interpersonal dynamics with the subject. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I will say that on almost every big thing I've written, whether it's a reported out article or a book or whatever, there has been at least one subject I've had a complicated personal relationship with, often mm. because you know they want the project to 
you know, fulfill something that is missing from the actual experience from them. Right. Yeah. Like I'm yeah. interviewing them about a partner who's died. Right. And so like they yes. obviously then the, the project to them exists as a kind of memorial to that person. And what I can say there is just be sensitive, just be a sensitive, kind person about it. Do you know what I mean? You don't, Absolutely. you don't have to lie to anyone. You know, I'm not saying you have to befriend people and be in their lives after the interview is over or anything, but you can just be kind during the process and, and, and be a human being. Being a human being really goes a long way. Yeah. And I also just want to remind people of an episode of working. I did an interview with Casey Parks, who. Oh, yeah, that's uh, a great she, episode. She'd, she'd written a book, uh, you know, that was based on research. It was kind of connected to her family. And, and But she's a reporter at the Washington Post who often does really long in-depth pieces. You know, she's written for The New Yorker and so on. And she explained that she says to people at the beginning, you know, there will be some things. If you, You're going to have to trust me. And you're going to – some things you – you know, will reveal that you are not a perfect person, but you know what? Nobody is a perfect person. She just gives them a chance, um, you know, to to not go along with the project. Um, but it, it just makes for such better material. Totally. I was really fascinated by Sisman's discussion of how he approached Le Carre's, shall we say, prolific affairs, <laughs> almost as prolific as his novels, right? I mean, he had like one a year for 20 years. Yeah. But the quantity of them was not actually what was important. What was important was the impact on his life, the deceit, the self-loathing, the angst, the kind of cycle of them over and over and over again, the kind of compulsory nature of them. It, it's a good reminder that one thing that is really useful when you're doing a major work over a long period of time is to have your rules for the project, your principles for the project. What is this project about and what is it doing? Whether that's a big work project or a novel or whatever, because you are going to come across shiny, lurid, you know, gems and you're yes. going to need to ignore them. And it's hard to ignore them or not ignore them, but, you know, figure out a way to use them that's that's productive. Yeah. For me with the method, it was, look, the idea is what matters. This is a biography of an idea and the personal shmada of the people because there's dozens and dozens of characters in this book are only important if they actually influence the development of those ideas and you know my book is plenty dishy there's tons of backstage <laughs> gossip in my book right but there's probably an equal amount that i did not put in Ooh. because it was not actually relevant to the development of the ideas so i'm just curious because you have a book coming out how did you figure out your rules and did you have them in advance or did they kind of develop during the revision process or what I would say I wish I had had a clearer sense of what fit into the book's underlying philosophy and what didn't. I had done a lot of work on the book proposal, and that did give me a basic statement of purpose. You know, conversations with the commissioning editor had helped me make decisions about the book's scope. But there was still a lot of figuring out as I was going along because... As the title, A Place for Our Own Six Spaces That Shaped Queer Women's Culture suggests, it takes as its subject six separate archetypal locations. I will just repeat them. It's the lesbian bar, the feminist bookstore, the softball diamond, lesbian land, feminist sex toy emporia, and queer destination vacations. Each place gets a chapter and they are each effectively different worlds. Ultimately, though, for each place, I knew that I wanted people to leave the chapter 
knowing a lot more about that place, understanding it more, having a sense of its complexities, but also getting a sense of how it fit into the larger picture of lesbian history. I admit, though, that there are a couple of elements that are probably there just because I just fell in love with them rather than because they're essential, but not too many, I hope. And, and I should say, a few things that are just purely delightful, that's totally fine putting in a big project, right? You don't have to yeah. be so rigorous that there's no joy. You got to yeah. leave room for joy because the the reader or viewer, if it's a movie or whatever, they can sense the joy of the people making it in the end result, I think. Yeah. And I think once you've read something and edited something, however many times I would l not like to count, you know what you kind of get bored with reading and that has to go. But if you're still delighted at the end, I should stay, I, I think. I got to tell you, though, Isaac, OK, my book isn't out yet, but there are galleys, you know, advanced copies that are out in the world with potential reviewers and people who might blurb the book. One blurber said it is, quote, jam packed with fascinating nuggets of cultural history, movement lore and gossip, parentheses, the gossip as meticulously documented as everything else. Unquote. And I was like, oh my, did I get some gossip in there? Good job, me, because I wasn't sure that I had. So I was really, really gratified to read that. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's episode. If you enjoyed it, or heck, even if you didn't, why not sign up for Slate Plus? If you go to slate.com slash working plus today, you will get so many goodies. You'll get full access behind the paywall on the Mothership site. You'll get bonus segments on shows like this one. You'll get bonus full episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Big Mood, Little Mood. Uh, go to slate.com slash working plus right now and sign up today. Special thanks to Adam Sisman for being our guest this week and to our producer, Cameron Drews, who is the secret heart of this podcast. Tune in next week for Isaac's conversation with Amitava Kumar, author most recently of My Beloved Life. Until then, get back to work. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.